What's up, guys? Thank you for tuning in to the DIYpreneur podcast. This episode is with Rand Fishkin of Moz and now most recently Spark Toro. Enjoy. Guys, quickly before I start the interview, if you are a confused entrepreneur that wants to know more about the obstacles of entrepreneurship and simply just wants to know how to make it happen, this show is for you, which means I want you to stop this episode right where it's at, give this show a rating, give it a review so that I can get in front of more entrepreneurs that are like you and help them out. Also, go and give the DIYpreneur Instagram page a follow because I post leverageable posts there that basically help you get started, get you unconfused for some of the stuff that entrepreneurship really is. So go and give that a follow. Guys, with all that being said, let's jump into the interview. All right, Rand, are you ready to get ugly? Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. All right, Rand, so quickly introduce yourself here. Introduce uh, Moz and then also your new business. Introduce what makes it special to yourself, what makes it special to your customers, and then we'll go from there. Sure, no problem. Yeah, so I started a company called Moz initially as a consulting business and then uh, transitioned that to software. It helps professional marketers and search engine optimization professionals with all the things they need to do for for SEO, uh, keyword research, and crawling your site and finding errors and link building, all those kinds of things. Uh, I left that business about a year and a half ago and uh, started a new one called SparkToro, which is still in the beta testing phase. Uh, we have a couple hundred beta customers and we're focused on audience intelligence, essentially providing the kinds of customer research you would get from surveys but without having to run an actual survey, you can just type in any audience in the world, you know, uh, whether it's house cleaners or uh, interior designers or marketing professionals, what have you. And we have a bunch of data we've collected from web and social profiles that we aggregate, anonymize and show you who they follow, what they pay attention to. So that is uh, hopefully... Yeah, hopefully just a few months away from launch. Yeah, wow. Uh, is that is that similar to like data analytics just for markets? Like, so most most of your clients would be like, I need to know more about my customer, and then you would come in. Is that correct? Like, you they would come to you for more information about the customers. Is that right? Not necessarily. Um, you know, there's lots of, for example, content marketers who are creating content that's not necessarily for their customers, but they're interested in finding, hey, I, you know, I made this uh, big piece of content. I think it's going to be really interesting to uh, journalists in the economic field, uh, economics field. Mm -hmm. I want to find who and what they pay attention to so I can target my outreach for my content and do good PR. Uh, there might be a startup founder who, yes, is interested in customer research, but around a bunch of groups, right? So they might say like, well, I'm thinking about targeting this market or this market or this market. I'm not sure which ones is, are going to be the most attractive for me. You know, is it going to be uh, home builders or contractors or, um, you know, construction specialists? Let me see all the data you have around all those different groups, and that'll help me choose my market. And so, yeah, we... 
it's a variety of use cases, but really designed to get at, you know, a lot of the questions that you might ask in a survey, but that would be very hard to get good answers to. Like, what do you follow and pay attention to? Uh, What sorts of words and phrases do you use in your bio? How do you describe yourself? Um, You know, what affinities do you have? Uh, Who do you pay attention to? What, uh, What social networks do you use? All that kind of stuff is stuff that we can answer with web scale data on the approximately 70 million profiles that we've gotten there right now. Well, I'm no business specialist, but that seriously sounds like every business could benefit from something like that. And it's amazing what software can do too. So that's just, that's amazing stuff, Fran. But the next, yeah, we hope so. Fingers crossed, right? (laughs) You you never know until it launches, whether it's going to, whether it's going to take off or not. But um, yeah, so far the beta test has, has gone well. Yeah, that sounds sick. So, Rand, the next question here for you is just a random one. I like to ask a random question just to keep things light and fun on this show because we do talk about entrepreneurial ugliness and obstacles. So this random question for you, Rand, is I saw uh, on a picture on the Internet that you had a handlebar mustache. So I want to know what was the greatest thing about that handlebar mustache when you had it? Ooh, the greatest thing was there were a number of um, nationalities and sort of communities that felt like I must be imitating them or that I was part of them. Right. So, um, for example, I, uh, uh, several times I would, uh, um, be in public somewhere, you know, maybe, maybe it's a cab driver or a Lyft driver or, um, someone that I, you know, just run into at a conference or an event or whatever. And they're, you know, there'll be a Sikh Right. And a lot of Sikh Muslims have um, have that handlebar mustache, right? The one that that curls up like the one that I had. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, oh, cool. You have that mustache, too. Do you (laughs) you know, do you have family or friends who are Sikh? It's like, no, no. I went to uh, I went to Turkey and uh, in Istanbul, there were a number of folks who had that handlebar mustache. And they were like, oh, are you doing that for us? And um, (laughs) yeah, there were some South American folks that I hung out with in Miami and. They were like, oh, you have the handlebar. So it was cool, right? It's one of those like very distinctive facial features that a lot of people um, felt resonance with. And it was it was fun to have that <laughs> connection. I, I will say, though, it was a pain in the butt to keep up. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Okay. You had uh, obviously gel, right? Like to I, I had mustache wax. Yeah, I ordered mustache wax from, from the beard brand guys and like had to put that in every day. It was only toward the end of the you know, maybe the last six months that I had it, it was so long that in the morning, if I didn't blow dry it, it just, it would just fall apart. Oh, yeah. so it was just ridiculous to have to like, the upkeep for that thing is Jeez. nuts. I would never imagine. Actually, I'm a fan of mustaches. I have uh, what people call a 70s porn stars. <laughs> like, I think it, okay. looks kinda, yeah, yeah. it looks good. Like I like the look of it and, you know, you shave the middle and it's just, attracts a lot of people and it starts a lot of conversation so i guess that's that's good especially yeah with your exactly like people come up to you and say hey that's cool and then you start a conversation so i mean really yeah cool. i think it's it's sort of funny it's like a signaling device right certain people <laughs> have certain associations with what it means and what it doesn't mean and exactly. yeah so various um uh people will either love it or hate it depending on who they are mm-hmm. for sure so to move on rand before you had even started your entrepreneurial journey, before you had started Moz or Spark Toro, what was an obstacle or a story in this phase that you can remember that really influenced you to move down the path of entrepreneurship? What was that story? 
<laughs> well, I mean, so I'm an odd person to ask that question to because mm. I dropped out of college to start Moz mm. with my mom, right? So it it was a long time ago. Uh, and I didn't have much of a professional career. I was basically a kid when I started it and really don't have a whole lot of, you know, didn't have a lot of life experience prior to, to beginning this business. Um, I think the thing that, that drove me to start, you know, working with Jillian, my mom, and, and for us to, to found Moz was essentially that I wasn't feeling like college was providing all that much value to me and, and it wasn't very interesting. Um, I'd had a fight with my dad and I, I'd been very lucky. My, um, my parents had paid for most of my college education, three of the four years that I went to the University of Washington. And I was also very lucky in that the last year that I was going to University of Washington was one of the last years that it was very affordable. It was so affordable that I could work a minimum wage job and pay for my off-campus apartment and books and tuition, which is insane, right? You can't. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That, that that was probably literally either the last year or the second to last year that you could do that. Um, and and I feel really terrible, right, that every every generation, every person who's ever come after, you know, 2000, 2001 could, could not afford to do that, even at a state school, right? I was going to state school and state tuition and all that, but it's just, just crazy. So, yeah, I, I was paying my own tuition the last couple of quarters and decided like, eh, this isn't worth it. I don't want to do it anymore. Mm. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to start this, uh, start doing this web design business. That was originally what we did, uh, before we moved into SEO consulting. Yeah. So Rand, when you had jumped into creating Moz in college, what were some of the skills that you really had to learn quick when you started running this business? Was it obviously the skill set web development, you said, what were there any other skills or life things that you had to learn really quick? I mean, I think that I, I wish I had learned a lot more, more quickly. I think I would have been a better entrepreneur, Mm. but, um, no, you know, I, I was very lucky in that I got to lean on my mom's experience. She'd been running her own, you know, essentially one, one woman consulting shop, uh, in the, in old school marketing, right. Pre web marketing, uh, for 20 years since 1981. And, So she, you know, she took care of the books and the finances and the operations and all that kind of stuff. And I was essentially just doing client facing work. Um, And I I think that, you know, as I took once I kind of took over the company, um, you know, from the perspective of I I had started Moz, right? What what was then called SEO Moz is like this side project, just a personal blog where I was sharing all my thoughts and information on, on search engine optimization. And, you know, then we had started to draw some clients in because of that. And I think with that business, um, the, you know, the, the key skills that were missing for me were hiring and firing, right? I just had no people management or recruiting skills whatsoever. And that really, you know, that made for a very painful, long, uh, ugly to use your word, uh, journey, right. To, to figure a lot of those things out. I, I was not great at, um, team building or at understanding what, you know, what made people want to work somewhere and what made them perform do and do their best work and, um, what distracted from that. 
Uh, I was not a great operations person, so I, I quickly outsourced that. I think that was one of the few things where I recognized I had a weakness and so uh, brought in good people to help out with that, right? Even as, um, you know, as we were growing, my mom and I were quickly getting overwhelmed by that. So we, we had a few people, uh, a woman named Christine Villasenor, who um, did an excellent job in, in operations for a long time. Obviously, Sarah Bird, who's now um, Moz's CEO, was, was our chief operating officer, was my chief operating officer for seven years, sort of in the middle stages of the company. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I think that what you said about outsourcing with these these problems that you especially faced as you were growing Moz, I think that it's it's becoming more and more easy to outsource things. So to the young entrepreneurs and everyone listening, I think that outsourcing is becoming cheaper and cheaper as well, easier and easier through these sites. So it's definitely something that people can look into more easily. And I think that based on what you said, people can people should you know look into outsourcing things that they already know how to do and uncomfortable things so just seems potentially yeah i mean i think that one of the challenges is if you if you fully outsource it tends to be the case that you won't build that skill yourself Hmm. um alternatively if you sort of insource right if you hire someone and manage them you often will pick up on a lot of the uh work and you'll do it alongside that person and um, you'll get to oversee a lot of it. You'll become sort of, especially if you devote yourself uh, to learning that practice with that person, I think you can learn a lot more. If it's yeah, um, if it's purely entirely outsourced, it, it, that tends not to be the case. And I, I do think there's significant challenges with folks who have, you know, little to no experience in a field outsourcing, getting fleeced or taken advantage of, or feeling or feeling that way, even if they haven't actually been right and and the people who are doing the work feeling frustrated because the 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 one who's paying them doesn't really understand how to manage them how to to manage the project um what they're looking for so i i think it pays to learn as much as you can about something about a topic try and do it some of it yourself uh, or work with people who have directly on site before you entirely outsource it yeah i like that answer So, Rand, to move on here within the startup phase of Moz, tell us of an obstacle here when you had just started Moz and, you know, you were, you had your own office space, you were still running it with your mom within this early phase when you didn't have all the capital, all this good stuff. Tell us of an obstacle here. (laughs) I mean, there was every, every obstacle. What was not an obstacle then? Jeez. Um, uh, Getting clients was a huge obstacle. We did not have a you know, repeatable, scalable way to acquire new customers, new new clients for our web design business, and which is basically why it failed, right? Went half a million dollars into debt. You know, we, by all uh, reasonable means, we should have shut it down. But instead, we were, we, were, we kept trying to dig ourselves out. Um, the, the, the blog, right? S, the SEO Moz blog, the one that became Moz, that is essentially what saved that business by building a repeatable consistent way for us to acquire customers. And that was through, you know, essentially the blogging, the knowledge sharing that I was doing on that site. Um, and then, you know, I think the, uh, the other really big challenge for us was, um, the, uh, financial side of things, right? So essentially digging out from under this debt, having these huge, you know, interest payments and penalties and, um, you know, always being 
sort of buried under that financial strain for, gosh, that must have been like a four-year period where, um, you know, I was making next to nothing, uh, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars a month. Uh, I was living with my girlfriend, who is now my wife, Geraldine, and she was paying the rent and all the bills. And, you know, I felt like a total sloth. You know, I was just <laughs> like, you know, I'm I'm mooching off my yeah. essentially college girlfriend, right, for, for years. Um, and that, uh, I think that takes its toll, not just on relationship strain, but, but, but also, you know, mentally and emotionally, especially, I think, unfortunately, like this shouldn't be the case, but it, but it's especially true, I think for, for American men, right? Because we're, there's this weird, I think it's going away now, but there was this weird historical sort of cultural aspect that, you know, to, to be a man means to be a provider. And so like, what, you, you know, how do you identify with your gender and your role in the world and what you're supposed to be doing and what you can be proud of unless you do that. And yeah, it's, it's good to see that disappearing and becoming more fair and balanced. Um, but I definitely, whatever that was, you know, 18 years ago, 17 years ago, felt that pretty harshly. Yeah. Ran. So going back when you were facing the, the financial obstacles with Moz, what were some things you think that you can tell our listeners to implement on how they could, if they were in a similar situation, what kind of resourceful tactical things would you recommend? Just give us one or two things that you looking back now would have done. I mean, I would have declared bankruptcy. I think that's a, um, a much smarter move than trying to dig out from half a million dollars of debt. Um, and bankruptcy laws, while they're not super generous in the United States, they are pretty darn reasonable for those types of things. Mm. Um, you know, we went into debt and I, a lot of the debt was in my personal name rather than the business's name. Mm. That was very dumb. I would advise no one to ever do that. Um, I think that we, we, I certainly shouldn't have been starting a business at that time, at that age, right? What I should have done was spend a few years working for other people, learning how businesses run and, and how to build up these relationships, how to hire and fire, how to work in a team, how to do the work itself, and then started my own thing rather than, you know, um, just cockily assuming, yeah, assuming that like, oh, I got this, I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm a 21 year old kid. I'm sure I'll, what could go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's nothing that can go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You feel invincible. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for um, sure. if it was, if like looking at me and my age, I think that for people that are looking for entrepreneurship, looking to build a business, I think that, and you can contradict me if you want on this, but I think that working for startups is probably one of the most beneficial things if you are Absolutely. an aspiring entrepreneur, because then you get to see everything, <sighs> like everything. Yeah. And you get, yeah. And you get to see what you like and don't like, even if you have a bad experience, that is so valuable. It's so yes. valuable to have that bad experience behind you and to be able to point to things that didn't go well in your previous company and say, gosh, I think this didn't, this happened because we didn't, or because we did X or Y. And so I'm not going to do X. I am going to do Y. Those kinds of things. It's just invaluable. And, and it, it sucks to have to get that experience, you know, all yourself um, with your own finances and credit on the line, as opposed to under someone else's risk model and, and tutelage. And, yeah. you know, when you get paid while you're doing it, 
too, right? I was not only making nothing, <laughs> I was also making all the mistakes that, you know, that I could have learned from yeah. someone else. Yeah, I think it's interesting because entrepreneurship, most people think is glamorous at face value. But honestly, I'm trying to make people understand that it's it's not necessarily selling your soul, but it's very close. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I just think that with this value that I'm trying to provide, that you just got to understand that before you even start. So I think that what you're saying is, is very, very valuable too. And then again, startup, look for a startup because that will give you invaluable skills, experience within growing a business for yourself. So, so Ransom, move on here. Within this same phase, just give us like two or three little wins that you really saw that progressed Moz and got it to where it was when you had left. Tell us those little wins that really led you to that point. Little wins that led us to where Moz eventually got to. So uh, let's see. When I stepped down from the CEO, Moz was maybe a, I don't know, somewhere in the range of $35 million to $40 million in recurring revenue. Um, and uh, just about profitable, I think, maybe close to break even at the time. Um, we had been profitable for a long time before we, we raised our Series B uh, in 2012. I, I think I think some of the biggest small drivers were um, incrementally building up our uh, our content and our marketing hmm. in in a way that that it became a flywheel, right? You sort of um, initially you put in a ton of work, it doesn't move very much, you get very little out of it. But as you keep cranking on that flywheel, keep inputting, you know, blog post after blog post and, and insight after insight and making small tweaks, you know, to the website, to the, to the content, to the SEO, uh, to our social promotion, to our email marketing list, all those kinds of things, right? We, our, our, our conversion rate optimization, our landing pages, as we, as we kept investing in all those things and, and upgrading them, uh, we, we found those little wins piled up into, you know, a big, engine that uh that turned into a lot of customers a lot of revenue yeah. a lot of very happy folks for real yeah i think that it go it comes down to just never giving up on your business because you kept tweaking every day every week every month and you know it got to where you finally wanted to be it was a big company with a lot of employees so really you just have to keep going like it's just yeah. grinding well, it out like you know yeah i mean the the one thing I might say is I, I, Moz has never gotten to where I sort of wanted it to be or, or where I promised our investors it would be. Mm. Um, and that I, I think that's probably another really good lesson for entrepreneurs to take away is that depending on what type of funding you take, what you sign up for, um, you know, you have to hit some pretty extraordinary milestones. So Moz, yeah. you know, Moz, maybe this year will do, I don't know, 55 or $60 million in revenue and uh, maybe profitable to the tune of 10 to 15 percent uh just under 200 employees um but that is that might sound impressive right but but when you've got a you know a venture capital fund that has whatever 400 million 500 million dollars and they need to return you know uh they need to beat market rate of returns right over a seven to ten year portfolio fund life mm -hmm. Uh, Moz is not really going to move the needle for them, yeah. you know, 
it's um it, it's kind of a kind of a waste in their eyes right they wish they'd put their money and their their time and effort into a business that was going to be you know the next facebook google salesforce mailchimp you know whatever it is um mailchimp didn't raise any venture but yeah, yeah. you get the idea so it's it's very it's very different and you know i think that probably we um we should almost definitely not have raised our second round of funding uh, in 2012. I think we probably organically, even without that funding, could have gotten to a pretty similar place, maybe even a better place, to be honest, because we we kept trying to find new growth avenues. We didn't ignore we, we ignored the core business for a long time, um, got distracted by a ton of stuff. And I think that really um, Threw it off. Well, yeah, I, I think you uh, you mentioned that you, you you checked out the book Lost and Founder, right? So that's mm -hmm. that's a lot of what that is about, um, especially those sort of last two three chapters uh, cover cover a bunch of that. Yeah. So, Rand, to move phases here, when when Moz had finally gotten traction, when it was it was running really nicely, you had good revenue coming in from Moz. Tell us of an obstacle here that you faced, just one obstacle, and then get deep with us in the story. One obstacle I faced once Moz was, um, you know, I kept having a lot of trouble with internal culture. Mm. Um, I think getting, um, you know, building a team that uh, wanted to be there, loved to be there, was doing their best work consistently uh, across all the different departments. Mm. That was that was really hard, especially as the company got bigger. I think that mm -hmm. is a much easier task, or at least a much easier task for me up to about mm, 40, 50 people. And then after that, um, you know, tribalism sets in, blame sets in. There's a lot of people who, um, it, it's very, very hard to ask people to assume best intent from their coworkers and the leadership. And there's not as much transparency about what everybody's doing. Uh, yeah, that makes, that makes things a lot harder. Yeah. So looking back at that, what do you think that we could take away? Just one lesson on how we could best create a culture that we are happy with within our own companies. What is one thing we could do? Uh, don't make Rand your CEO if your company is bigger than 100 people. <laughs> uh, no, let's see. Um, in all seriousness, I think uh, one of the things that I almost certainly will do differently with SparkToro um, and, and would do differently, uh, with Moz is to be much more, um, culture focused in hiring and onboarding, mm. uh, meaning, you know, here are, here's acceptable behavior inside the company. Here's, here's not, here's how it's modeled. Here's, you know, uh, folks who are doing that. We're going to do performance reviews off of that. Um, I, I think that we get a little, uh, maybe, incorrectly and overly focused on the work rather than the work styles um, and the ability of people to work well together. And it's uh, it's pretty amazing to see what people who enjoy working with each other and trust each other can do when they're given um, more free reign as opposed to what people, e even people who are given great direction and exactly the right goals and the right mission and um, you know, the right tactical things to do often fall apart, even if they're very talented, even if, you know, at 10 other companies, they would do a great job. 
uh, if the if the culture isn't right, meaning they don't trust their coworkers, they don't feel safe there, they um, don't enjoy working with those people, uh, you know, they don't find value in uh, in having meetings with them, spending time with them, doing you know work together. Hmm. Yeah, wow. that's uh, yeah tough hiring. thing. HR is definitely tricky. So, I mean, I don't know a ton about HR and I don't know where to direct people to best learn about it, but yeah, um, I have a couple of, um, a couple of books that I would, that I would strongly recommend. Yeah. Shoot those out. Um, yeah. So one is from, uh, uh, two, two authors, uh, Liz Fosslein and Molly West Duffy. It's called no hard feelings. Um, the subtitle is the secret power of embracing emotions at work. It is excellent. It's a fast read, uh, incredibly high quality book, fun to read, has a bunch of like graphics and comics uh, inside it as well, which you wouldn't think a business book would, but it uh, it resonates like it. It nails it. You will read these and um, yeah, you'll find it just just amazing. Uh, there's also a great book for folks who are in management or or even those who want to go into it or, or work with managers uh, called The Making of a Manager by Julie Zhou, uh, Z-H-U-O, uh, from Facebook. And she, yeah, again, um, excellent, excellent book. I highly recommended. Sweet. Yeah. So Rand, to take, a uh, step. Kim Scott's radical candor is also great. King. Oh, I think I know that one. That one is. Yeah. Yeah. Kim Scott, she's, she's very well known. Radical candor has sort of made its way around the, the tech and entrepreneurship, uh, ecosystem pretty heavily last, uh, last year and a half. So, Rand, to take a step back here really quick, um, I didn't really get this out of you in the first startup phase, but I just want to come back to it and say, looking back at Moz, what are two stories that you can remember or however many three, two stories of resourcefulness where you didn't have all the capital, you didn't have all the money, you didn't have all the resources to like big companies would have to get over obstacles and little things. So tell us two or however many stories you think are worth telling of resourcefulness where you had to go out get something done the next day or you had to knock doors to sell your product kind of things like that tell us just a couple stories like that yeah so my first uh my first conference that i ever went to was uh it was called search engine strategies at the time it it sort of evolved into what what eventually became the smx conference series um danny sullivan was running it danny sullivan who's now now at google but for a long time ran uh, search engine land and third door media. And, uh, the, you know, the getting to that conference was very expensive in New York, you know, getting a hotel room was tough. I think I had to ask my dad for points at a like timeshare, weird timeshare thing, kind of a sketchy place, (laughs) you know, and like, um, and, uh, and, and share a room and, um, you know, I went to this event every day and, uh, yeah, just tried to learn as much as I could take, mm. took copious notes, wrote them up for the blog. I, mm. I had to beg for a ticket. I, I couldn't afford the ticket price, right. Which was like, whatever, $1,500 or something yeah. to get in. And, uh, and so I had asked, you know, I had asked around on some, on some forums, um, including the search and watch forums. If, if, uh, you know, if it was worth it to like go just to the expo hall for, which was like $40. And, uh, and Danny Sullivan reached out to me and he was like, Hey, I've read your stuff on this, on this Moz site. Like, uh, here's a ticket. Why don't, why don't you come? Yes. Right. And it was essentially a press pass. And, um, 
by covering that conference, writing about it and, um, you know, broadcasting what all the, what all the speakers said and, um, sharing their, um, their lessons. It was, it was crazy. Like after that event, half or more of the speakers who had done sessions there that I'd seen knew who I was, mm. right? They were like, Oh, I know this Rand fishing guy. I know the Moz blog, right? Like, uh, that guy writes good stuff. I, I liked his coverage of my session. You know, I appreciate him, uh, helping me amplify my message. Yeah. And, um, and th- I think that that philosophy stuck with me forever, right? It was essentially you amplify other people, you help them with their goals, you make them look good. And, you know, people will, karma will come back, right? Yeah. That, um, that exactly. feeling of, Hey, I, I would love to do this person a favor in the future. Uh, not everybody has it, but enough, right? Plenty enough to, to help a career. So that was a big one. Yeah. Uh, a few years later, we had significant problems with our conversion rate optimization, our, like our landing pages didn't perform well. Um, and I found these consultants that I um, that were essentially looking for a case study. Uh, these two guys, uh, Ben Jessen and Carl, Dr. Carl Blanks, and they ran this uh, early agency called Conversion Rate Experts, which I, th- I think they still run to this day. And um, uh, yeah, basically, you know, worked with them, uh, gave them, you know, video testimonial and, and, um, uh, had them redo our landing pages. And we were, you know, we were very, um, we followed their direction kind of to the T and, you know, their, their agency has done, gone on to do extremely well, but we were, we were one of their first, you know, big case studies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that that helped their business grow. And as a result, right, we kind of got a, a great early rate, I think we probably paid them, man, I don't even remember, maybe it was like $15,000 total, and we probably made a million dollars off that landing page, if not more, right? So it was, um, you know, it, it helped transform our business. Yeah. Uh, but we got we got a great, you know, great deal and great people because we were willing to take a chance on someone in their in their early stages of their company. Yeah, it's always, I always love asking that question because it opens up what they exactly did, like how they managed to just not give up and get things done within their business. So really, it's just pounding it out, finding, looking for all possible outlets that you can possibly get into to, you know, get like a connection, get some networking opportunity. There's literally so much you can leverage off of within this startup phase and all that good stuff. You just have to be attendant. So, Ma- so Ran, the last question that I have here for you is a doozy because it opens up how each guest on my show thinks about entrepreneurship. So this question is, in one word, what is one attribute you would tell an aspiring entrepreneur to master right now? I want to say either humility or self-awareness. So why those two? Because I think they are best correlated um, not just correlated. I think they're, they're also directly causal in, uh, creating for you an entrepreneurial journey that is, uh, likely to be what you want it to be. Mm. Um, and that's not to say like, that is not to say it is the highest correlated or, or causal factor with you having the potential to build a billion dollar business or, you know, whatever, whatever ludicrous, things that tech press is amplifying these days. Um, but the, but rather, uh, being able to have success by your own judgment and by your own metrics uh, being, you know, um, 
being realistic, being uh, an emotionally sensitive and aware person, which I think will make you better at hiring. It'll make you better at building product for customer. It'll make customers. It'll make you better at partnerships. It'll make you better at uh, at helping other people, which which should be what business, if not all of life, is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I actually sat down with my uncle. He's an entrepreneur, and he said to me that. of entrepreneurs aren't, uh, uh, what's his name? Facebook founder. um, Zuckerberg. Yeah, Zuckerberg. They're not Elon Musk. They're not Bezos. Like those people exist, but it's literally 0.001% of entrepreneurs that can make that amount of money. Like it's just not realistic for everyone to have that kind of thing. So with what you're saying, I think it's very valuable to understand that you have to find what's realistic for you and use that to as best as possible. So I really, I really like that answer. Yeah. Well, and all those guys, right. They were, they came from families who were rich. They started mm-hmm. out rich like that. You know, yeah. it's not a, uh, um, I think it is, I am vastly more impressed by someone who came from, you know, a struggling background. Um, especially, you know, if their family has, uh, generations of struggle yes. and, and they were still, you know, they were able to build, hell, a business where they can afford to pay for themselves and their kids to, you know, go to college. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, that's damn remarkable, right? You should be, you should be incredibly proud of that. You should probably be more proud of that than Zuckerberg is of Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. So, Rand, that's, that's all the questions that I had here for you on this show. I just want to thank you for sharing your experiences and thanks for coming yeah, out. My man. Pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. You bet. Thanks for having me, Josh. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the show. If you liked this episode, you're going to like it even more with the show notes page on the DIYpreneur.com. It'll help you just digest a little bit more of what has been said here today and help you implement things into your entrepreneurial journey. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show and tell your friends, tell your cousins, tell your mom, tell your grandma, tell your dog about this show if they are entrepreneurs because this kind of information will help them out. Lastly, don't forget to give the DIYpreneur Instagram page a follow to track and tune in to more leverageable posts that I'm trying to give you guys and help you along your entrepreneurial journey and unconfuse you guys. So go give it a follow. Again, thank you guys for tuning in and I'll see you on the next episode.